All right, well, good morning. As, as Wayne said, I've had a week to prepare this, so, uh, but it's been really, uh, it's been a, a wonderful process just as the Lord is, I sat down with an empty piece of paper and said, okay, Lord, wh what message do you have for your people? So that's, this is what the Lord laid on my heart, so uh, we're going to be going through Philippians chapter 3, and as each, each new year begins, many of us take time to, to look back at the previous year, which we did last Sunday, and just kind of reflect on, okay, Lord, this is what you've done over the past year. And maybe some of us then take the next step and say, okay, Lord, this new year coming, what do you have in store for us? Many people even go so far as to make resolutions, New Year's resolutions. We've, always, we've all heard the term. And this concept of New Year's resolutions probably dates back to the time of the Babylonians, about 3,000 years ago, believe it or not. Their resolutions obviously would look dramatically different than what ours would, uh, but that's where they date back to. And then I, I went and found a study that said that usually only about 8% of the people actually succeed in meeting their res New Year's resolution, 8%. So there's your you know, the, the, how hopeful you can be at the New Year's resolution you make. Uh, but I wanted to really focus on something that has a much higher success rate. Uh, 8% should not be our goal, an 8% success rate. So I want to turn our attention to the one who's faithful, and he can complete his promised work in us. That's a sure thing. And so that's kind of where this message is going. And if we think about what a resolution is, it's a fixed purpose or determination of mind that reforms our lives. That's what a res resolution is. We resolve to do something, we're actually committing to make a change. We're committing to the fact that we're going to change. That's what a resolution is. So I, I can't certainly stand here and tell you for the coming year, these are the things you need to do individually. That would be way beyond what, what anyone could really do. But I think it, that we can kind of build on this momentum that all of us feel at this time of year to think of newness and new beginnings and a new year, to kind of use that as, as a platform to, to approach the Lord and see what He would have for us. And that's kind of the idea here. If I was trying to convince you of something, the result of that usually is not good because then our, my will is, is pitted against your will and then that ends up in you know, a confrontation of wills. That's not the idea. The idea would just be to encourage us to have a conversation with the Lord to see what it is He's asking you to do this next year, what He resolves you to do. And so that's really where this, this passage came from as I was praying about it and how we ended up in, uh, in the passage in Philippians this morning. So before we begin, let me open up with a word of prayer and then, then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives, who you've called us to be, how you work in us through your mighty power, Lord, to transform us. Help us each, Lord, to approach you and sit at your feet and learn from you and desire to know you, that you may work in and through us, Father. Help me this morning, Lord, to communicate your truth. May you speak to our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and I have a, a rather lengthy intro, which I normally don't do, 
But as I began to pray about and consider what the Lord wanted me to talk about this week, um, I came across a prayer that had a phrase in it that, that really got my mind thinking about who we've been created to be and, and the potential that God has placed in each of us. And hopefully God will use this to help each of us resolve the next year to kind of go back to that foundation. So I'm gonna, I'll read this short prayer, which I think is a pretty good New Year's prayer, uh, and it goes as follows. A new year is unfolding, like a blossom with petals curled tightly, concealing the beauty within. Lord, let this year be filled with the things that are truly good, with the comfort of warmth in our relationships, with the strength to help those who need our help, and the humility and openness to accept help from others. As we make our resolutions for the year ahead, let us go forward with great hope that all things are possible with your help and guidance. I thought that was a nice prayer for the new year. And it's anonymous prayer. I'm not sure who, who originally crafted it. It certainly was not me. I'll make that clear. Um, and it has this God-centered focus about it, and it ends with this confidence that, that God is the one working in us to do these things. So that's where our certain hope is. And I generally don't make New Year's resolutions. Uh, that's typically not what I do. But I, I think it, that this time of year, like I said, offers us an opportunity to consider what, how God desires to move in our hearts. And I think that's important to do uh, each and every day, but especially this time of the year. So as I considered this prayer, I thought of this idea that the prayer mentioned about this, this bulb, this flower bulb, and, and what was contained in it, and all the beauty that's just waiting to be revealed from that one bulb. And so I, I wanted to use that analogy, so I actually brought a flower bulb with me. And I don't know, does anybody recognize what this is? Yeah, it is. It's a daffodil. Great. So... This bulb doesn't look anything like the daffodil plant or flower that it's going to become. But that's what it is. So all that it's to become, God has wrapped up into this little tiny bulb. All that potential, all that beauty. And so in order to get from this bulb to what God intends, there's a few questions with regard to this bulb that have to be considered. What is it, first of all? You'd like to know what you're actually planting. It's a daffodil. What's the expectation of what it will become? Well, this is going to become a, a beautiful daffodil flower. As those of you who know what they look like, that's what it'll be one day. So what's the key to it becoming that? If I just let it sit here on the pulpit, that's not what's going to happen to it. It won't spontaneously turn into that. So the key to it becoming what it's supposed to be, well, it obviously needs water, it needs light, and it needs good soil. If it's got those three things, it'll turn into a daffodil flower. And then, what's the key to remaining in that condition, and not just withering away into anything? Well, it would be the continuing application of light and soil and water, and it'll continue to be a daffodil. So, I kind of wanted to use that analogy and apply it to this section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning. So, as we consider this next year, I'm sure that each of us is focused, or we should be focused at least, on becoming all that God wants us to become, that beautiful flower that he wants us to be as a child of God, producing fruit for him, 
by allowing him to work in and through us. That would be a, a wonderful goal for all of us to have for this year, I'm sure. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 in its entirety. And we're going to look at those four questions as similar to the bulb here and see how they apply to our lives. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 and we'll read through this passage. And then we'll, we'll come up with these questions for us. And then we'll dig through it and see what the Lord has for us. So Philippians chapter 3, and this morning we'll read verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from a prison in Rome. That's where he's crafting this letter from. And I think it's interesting as you read through Philippians, it's just full of joy and rejoicing and praise to the Lord. Because Paul wasn't focused on his circumstance. He was focused on how God was using that circumstance to minister to those that were around him. Even the very guard that was kept over him was being ministered to by, by him. And also, he would receive these reports of all the places he had been. In this case, Philippi. You may remember the story of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. It's in Acts 16. So as he heard these reports of how the, the Lord's work was continuing in the hearts of those people, he rejoiced. He could see how the Lord was working. So God's great plan of evangelism through that entire region centered on his number one missionary being locked away in prison. Just an amazing plan. And so Paul is, is filled with joy, and he's rejoicing throughout this entire letter. So as we go through here, I'm going to break this up into three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 6, we're going to try and answer the question, who am I? Each of us individually. And then verses 7 through 9, what is the expectation of what I can become? And then in verses 10 and 11, what's the key to becoming what we were created to be? 
So again, following that analogy we looked at late, uh, earlier. And then next week, we'll look at verses 12 through 21, and we'll answer the question of what's the key to this ongoing growth. And that's what we'll look at next week. So Paul begins with encouraging these believers. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's encouraging them to rejoice. And I think that was great, Jeff, how you led us to just bring forth praise to the Lord. And think about the difference that that makes in our hearts when we focus on what the Lord is doing in and around us. Because if we do the opposite and we focus on complaining and all the things that aren't going right, I know for me, that doesn't lead me to rejoicing. It doesn't focus me in on the Lord. Uh, so the idea here is that he, he's, he's, he's certainly in the midst of his circumstance. We know that because verse 2 talks about what's going on around him. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul didn't have on rose-colored glasses. He, he wasn't covering up all of the horrible circumstance that was going on around him. It was in the midst of that that he chose to focus on what the Lord was doing, and that brought forth this attitude of rejoicing. So that's the idea that Paul is, is, is bringing forth here. And then in verse 3, he begins to answer our first question, who am I? So Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He uses this phrase, we are the circumcision. So you, this is a reference back to an Old Testament concept of the Jewish people were those that were circumcised. And circumcision was an outward sign of a covenant that God had made with the people of Israel. And it was a literal cutting away of the flesh. I mean, this was a, a, a sign that he was given. And he's using this to, to kind of draw the analogy of to answer that question, who am I? He says, we are the circumcision. He's really referring to a true believer. And he goes on to describe the conduct of that true believer. A follower of Jesus, a Christian then, is one whose conduct it has in it worshiping by the Spirit of God, glorying in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. So this true believer is who we are. That's what Paul makes clear. And as we consider how we are con to conduct ourselves, we must remember that we're not doing these things in this list so that we can become a true believer. It's the opposite. God has called us to himself, and as a result, these, these things are produced in us. That's what, he's, that's what he's helping us to see here. These are an overflow of the fact that Jesus has saved us and is sanctifying us, and these things exist in our lives. These three things he mentions, worship, glorying in Christ Jesus, and putting no confidence in the flesh. So let's take a look at each one of these. The first one he mentions is worship. So when we hear the term worship, sometimes we just restrict it to, you know, what Jeff's doing up here as he leads the congregation in that portion of our service. And that's certainly a part of it. But worship is really to reverence with supreme respect. That's worship. And so that term reverence for many of us may be a little um, theological as well. And to reverence means to consider God and his divine nature, esteem his perfection, 
And as we're doing that, that produces in us an inclination to serve God and an unwillingness to offend God. All of that is wrapped up into worship. And that's what Paul's talking about. And here in this context, he says, we worship by the Spirit of God. So we're able to do this through His Spirit that dwells in us. And if you really think about it, it's really dependent upon us knowing God. That's this whole idea of worship because we recognize God, know God, see who He is, and then that produces in us this worshipful attitude. So knowing God is, is absolutely essential to this worship. And then he talks about glorying in Christ Jesus. And I think glorying is another one of those words that's kind of theological and, and kind of heady. But glory means to exalt with joy or to boast about. So in other words, be proud about what Jesus has done, is doing, and has promised to do in your life. That's the idea. Boast about it. Tell others about it. Gladly and openly. This is what the Lord is doing in my life today. This is how he spoke to me today. This is what he's doing. This is what he's promised to do. This is what he has done. That's the idea of glorying in Christ Jesus. Think about if we were able to do that 100% of the time, every single day, the difference that would make in our lives. Wow. Now, we, we can't. You know, we, we have this flesh that constrains us a bit, but that's the idea that Paul's talking about here. A continual rejoicing and boasting about Jesus as we know and see that he's working. And then the last phrase he uses, he actually is going to expound upon quite a bit, but he says, put no confidence in the flesh. See, we know that none of this comes from us. It's not dependent on us. It has nothing to do with us. It's God working in and through us as his instrument that produces these things. So Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. And he then goes on in verses 4 through 6 to add a few clarifying comments as to why we're to put no confidence in the flesh. So he gives a little pedigree, like a little mini pedigree of himself. He says he was raised a Jew and a Pharisee. He had all the lineage, all the pedigrees. By Jewish standards, Paul was a devout, jealous, zealous follower of the law of God, all the traditions. And he even goes so far in this verse to say, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, referring to the time when he actually persecuted Christians. So Paul wants us to see, though, that he puts no confidence in these earthly, fleshly things. They were not what's important. They are not what's important to him. And I think this is such good news because who we are in Christ, who we're called to be, has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our family tree, nothing to do with our background, nothing to do with how we were raised, nothing with what we do every day for a living. None of those things have anything to do with who we are in Christ. We're to put no confidence in any of them. That has, they don't define us. They're, they're not part of who we are in Christ. That's amazing news. It's amazing news. So if you think about it like this, we said this is a daffodil bulb. Would it ever consider being anything else? Would it hope to turn into a rose or a weed or anything else? No, it's a daffodil bulb because that's how God created it to be. 
He wants it to be a daffodil bulb. It is a daffodil bulb. God wants us to be his child. We are his child. Plain and simple. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. So, knowing who we are, a child of God, a true believer, is really important when we resolve what to do in this next coming year. Because that's who we are. And we should resolve some, to do something that's in keeping with who God created us to be. The next verses, verses 7 through 9, we're going to consider the expectation of what we are to become. So again, we talked about the expectation of this. It's going to become a daffodil flower. So what is the expectation of what we are going to become as true believers? So Paul says in verses 7 through 9, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul says whatever gain he has had, he counts loss for the sake of Christ. So what we're to be has nothing to do with who we were. We're new creations. Many passages Paul talks about in that. We forget those things that are behind. We, we press on to those things that are forward. So God defines who I am, and anything that I think I did to make it that way, that's not right. right? It's not about us. It's about what God created us to do. And then in verse 9, as we count all these things lost, what we gain is worth so much more because we have gained the ability to know Jesus. And I think it's, it's amazing here. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what we've gained. We've gained this ability to know Jesus. That's what we've gained. We've gained so much. So I can know Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, God is my friend, he's my Lord, he's my God, he's my Father. And Paul keeps the focus on him. He says, for his sake, for his sake, he suffered, he's counted all this as lost. So everything in our lives we're able to count as rubbish because we compare it with what we've gained in Christ. That's the point that he's making. And then in verse 9 he says, And we're found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So, we're to be found in Jesus, walking with Jesus, in fellowship with Jesus, and developing a relationship with Jesus, and the result that comes from that is righteousness. See, we can be righteous, which, again, none of this is coming from us, but who are we created to be? What hope do we have to become? Righteous, which is just an amazing thought if you think about it. And it all hinges on this idea of righteousness by faith. And faith is that confident expectation that God will, will do what he says he's going to do. So our conduct is based on the fact that we know that God is working in and through us. And that faith, through that faith, righteousness comes. So the expectation of who I am to become is righteous. One who is holy in heart. It's kind of an amazing thought to even think about. The fact that that's how God views us. Righteous. 
not because of anything we've done, keep in mind, it's because of the work he's doing in and through us. So it's, it's kind of like understanding this righteousness doesn't come from me, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And the work that Jesus did on the cross for me, his death on the cross continues to work in me as he sanctifies me. And one day he will be faithful to complete that work in me and I'll be presented blameless before God in heaven. That's the process. So that's, that's kind of the end of the journey. So how does knowing that we're righteous help us to resolve to be what God wants us to do? Well, if we think about, well, the first step is probably more important, right? First, you better get the fact right that you're a true believer. So if you're not confident that you're a true believer, now's the time to get that right first. First, get right with the Lord. Make sure you are, in fact, saved. Then begin to consider how God is working in and through you to make you righteous, the sanctification process that he's taken, taken you through. And that, I think, helps us understand the potential so that we don't limit ourselves in our resolve because of any number of circumstances. It could be we limit ourselves because of our family background, because of our situation, because of how we view ourselves, because of what our experiences are. Any number of things can limit us. However, if we realize this is how God views me, this is where God is taking me, then any limit we might place on what God wants us to become is removed because we're letting Him define that finished product, whatever that looks like. I can put barriers on myself. Oh, I don't have time to do that, or I don't have the teaching to do that, or I don't have the background to do that, or I don't have the skill to do that, or I don't have the circumstance to be able to do that. That's not the way God is looking at us. He's looking at us as His righteous child, and we come by faith to that part so that then we can now remove the barriers we've placed in the way and let Him truly define us. And I think that's important in the process so that we don't set the bar so low that we're unable to give God the glory that He wants to get out of our lives. And I think that's why it's important to consider who we are and what we can hope to become and allow God to define those things, not us. And then He'll begin to call you in that direction. So how does that process happen? How do we become this righteous person by faith that God is calling us to be. I think Paul touches a little bit on that in the next couple of verses, kind of this, this last question that how do we you know, encourage this developing process in our hearts? Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what's the key to becoming what Christ has created me to be? Well, Paul has mentioned several times throughout this passage about his desire to know Jesus. And I think he's helping us to see that if, if we want to know who we are in Christ, if you want to know who you are in Christ, then get to know who Jesus is. Make it your aim to know Jesus. That's the point. 
if you know who Jesus is and we're created to be like him and we're being transformed into him day by day as he works in our hearts, then if we make it our aim to know him, we'll get a lot better idea of what he wants us to become. So if I want to know who I am to become, I need to focus on knowing Jesus. And it's easy to get our focus off of that. Many things that we focus on might seem like good ideas. Some may pursue goals. Some may pursue blessings. Some may pursue knowledge and understanding. Some may pursue wisdom. Some may pursue serving. Some may pursue worship. Some may pursue being recognized. All of these things are not the focus. If we want to be because they're really outcomes, right? All of those are outcomes. The outcome of knowing Jesus is that we can be blessed, have knowledge, have wisdom, be able to serve, be able to worship, be able to give glory to God. We need to make it our goal to pursue Christ. And we get to know Jesus to the point that knowing Jesus is enough. And this is something that we've talked about on Monday night studies before. Just the idea of knowing Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus and. Knowing him, and that's the focus. So if you read back through this passage and see how many times Paul mentions knowing Christ and the value of knowing Christ and how important that is in our lives. So this really is the how do I section of this passage. How can these things happen for me? We'll make it our goal and resolve to know Jesus. As you go to the scripture, go to the scripture with the intent of knowing the author, of developing a relationship with him, of sitting at his feet, of knowing him, of listening to him. Verse 10 mentions some pretty deep things in here that I could spend a lot of time going over. But he really mentions, if you read verse 10 closely, that I may know him, meaning Jesus, and, and then he lists a few other things. The power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death. So when I went through the first version of this, I started to expand upon those, and then I shared them with Monica, my wife, who's an English major and an editor. And uh, she asked me a bunch of questions that I couldn't answer. I didn't have a good answer for. And I tried to convince her of what God was saying to my heart through these phrases. And he wasn't saying that to her heart. And it was a rather interesting conversation. So I thank her for that because I think it would have probably confused a lot of people. So I removed all that, thanks to her. And, <laughs> and, and really, I think the more important thing is to recognize in each of your lives, in each of your walks with the Lord, what do those things mean to you? Because they should mean something or Paul wouldn't have put them here. So rather than to describe or attempt to describe what each of these mean to me, I encourage you to ask yourself, what do they mean to you? And really with this point in mind, how do they deepen your understanding of Jesus? So probably the first question is, how well do you know Jesus? That's a really good place to start. And then the next question would be, how does the power of his resurrection affect your life today? Not just at the moment of conversion. What does that mean to you today? And that would be a great conversation to have with the Lord.
And then when you're done with that, a few months later, you can ask him, how are you sharing in Christ's suffering? Or are you even willing to share in his suffering? Or are you like me sometimes? You look at the suffering ahead and you're like, ah, that's okay, I don't think I'm going to do that one. <laughs> so that would be another conversation to have. And then, how are you becoming like him in his death? So what do each of those mean? How can they be applied to you? And, and, and how can the Lord speak to you through those things to help you know him more? I think those are good questions. And they're really lifelong pursuits that lead to know to us knowing an infinite God in a deeper way. But they begin with that single step, a desire to know Jesus. Paul is, is telling us these are connect, directly connected to knowing him. So we should spend some time thinking about and applying them to our lives and, and to our hearts. And again, it's a lifelong process. So don't think you're going to get it in a day. I certainly didn't get it in one day. I had to remove it from the, from the sermon this morning. <laughs> so in verse 11, Paul really finishes by showing us the importance of the finish line. He says, if by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that finish line is to be resurrected from this you know, body of flesh so that we may spend an eternity with God. See, the, the path we were on forever was eternal as well, but it was eternal separation from God, receiving eternal punishment. It's not the path we're on anymore. Now, forever, we get to spend forever in heaven with Jesus. That's where we're headed. And we should make every effort to know him along the way. So, as we consider the beginning of this new year, 2016, I hope that, that we each consider what God wants us to resolve to be this next year. And, and again, I can't tell you, here's a list of the resolutions you should make for the coming year. It's, it's certainly not going to work that way. But hopefully, I can encourage you and provide a framework through which you can go to God and ask Him to guide you to what He wants you to resolve to do this coming year. And I think that's really the important thing. And it begins with understanding who we are. We're a true believers, followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. If you've put your faith and trust and confidence in him and, and his work, he's working in you. What can we expect to become? Righteous. It's just an amazing concept. So don't limit yourself by your own barriers. Allow him to, to set that goal and define what it is he wants you to do. And, and what's the key to becoming what Christ wants us to be? Knowing Jesus. Know him. Get to know him. Spend time knowing him. Make it your point. And it should be daily, every day, in his word, letting him speak to your heart, drawing closer and closer and closer to him. Those are the things that should be happening so that then he can begin to show you, okay, now that you know me, this is how I want you to witness about me today. Or this is how I want you to work. I want to work through you today to give me glory. This is how I'm going to do fill in the blanks so that he may be glorified. All of those things will happen. And he's promised us that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So next week... We're going to pick up in verse 12, and, and we'll look at kind of the idea of 
promoting this environment where he's continuing to work in and through us. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us, Lord. We know all of this is from you. None of it's from us, Lord. We thank you for this gift of salvation. We thank you that you're continuing to sanctify us and work in and through us, Lord. Help us to let you define us. Help us, Lord, to let you work in our hearts and have your way with us and give us a desire to know you more. And help us, Lord, as we go to the scripture to truly make it our aim to know you more that we may be able to give you glory. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.